The UN Conference on Climate Change, or COP28, wrapped up in Dubai last week, agreeing to ratchet up climate action before the end of the decade. But what does this mean at a local level, and what can we do individually to help make positive changes? Chief Executive Officer of EcoChoice Aotearoa, Laura Gemmel, was at the conference. She joins me now. Kia ora. Kia ora, Jesse. Welcome back to RNZ. I think you're an RNZ for a few years. I was indeed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and now, tell me about this role at EcoChoice, and come in close to the microphone if you can. Sure, sure. Um, so EcoChoice Aotearoa uh, came out of the Ministry for the Environment about 30 years ago, um, and we look to certify products and services um, against our environmental criteria, um, which also now includes things like modern slavery. So we look at things from, you know, if we're looking at a product, we look at the raw material of extractions right through to the end of that product's lifetime. So what happens at the end? What's the product stewardship? Uh, are the producers taking um, extra steps to ensure that that um, it's not you know, ending up in landfill and it's you know durable and repairable and all of those things. Do they have a take-back scheme in place, for instance, and those sorts of things? So, um, that's so you've been around role. for about 30 years. Yeah, we've probably been a little bit quiet. We're um, previously known as Environmental Choice New Zealand, but we had a, a wee rebrand earlier this year. Mm. Um, and I guess we've been around quietly doing our work, but it's time for us to sort of step up a bit more. Um, I think there's a – we've – kind of tended to work in the business-to-business space. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, we've definitely heard in the 18 months I've been at EcoChoice that um, consumers, everyday people, like want, you know, some idea or some indication of what they're buying is the yeah. real deal. Um, so we feel obligated to sort of step into that into that space. And we don't, you know, we're pass-fail. We don't accept offsets. You have to meet the criteria. And if you don't, then it's very unfortunate. But, um, you know, go back to the drawing board. So yeah. so you're a government initiative and government-funded too? No. Um, so we – the ministry owns our trademark, but we are governed by our own board. Um, and Is that an unusual setup? I think so, yeah. And to, and if I'm honest, I think we're all trying to figure out um, the best way to navigate that. So we're set up as a not-for-profit um, and – we essentially, if if a business um, manages to get a a product or a service certified, they will pa- uh, pay a license fee um, to use our mm. eco label, so like a, you know, the trademark, and that's what keeps the lights on. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, we we expect some would a say lot. that was an incentive to <laughs> to do as many as possible, so that you get the money rolling in. But obviously, you've got sort of benchmarks for what you will and won't accept. Yeah, we're part of something called the Global Eco Labeling Network, so we're held to really strict standards, and we use, also use international standards organisation guidelines. So um, we have independent auditors, so we set the standard, and then uh, a business will be allocated an independent auditor. Um, so they have they're not attached to us in any way. So um, there's no incentive for them to pass mm. um, that sort of thing um, or cheat the system. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's... What was the need for this? Um, well, it's really interesting. So the National Party actually set us up um, 30 years ago, um, which people are often surprised about, but Parliamentary Commissioner for the Environment, Simon Upton, was one of the driving forces behind that. And I think, I'm you know speculating here, there's, uh, you know, we, we have boxes of paper records and things like that, which I have not gone completely through. Um, but I think it was a you know a voluntary way with people to sort of get with the program and start looking at, um, you know, how they produce and how they consume things. Because um, it would have been around then in the early 90s where people started putting dolphins on their um, dishwashing liquid bottles and, you know, calling themselves Earthwise. I hope that isn't a real brand. It might be actually. Well, yeah, it is. Okay, sorry. <laughs> started calling themselves uh, Earth-friendly. Um Ocean plastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and so I guess 
this was a government initiative so that people at the supermarket say, well, look, I don't have time to investigate all of these credentials myself. Give me a, a mark that I can um, rely on. Um, that someone else has actually done the hard, the hard graft and the auditing on this. Yeah, I think that was initially the plan. Um, we sort of started out looking specifically at the building industry, um, limited resources, and that seemed to be yeah. where we could make the most bang for our buck, is looking at um, sort of all of those materials. A lot of them end up in landfill or are very mm-hmm. carbon intensive. Um, and so like I, green insulation, that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so we look at, you know, historically, if you look at our product portfolio, still we have a lot of, um, we've worked a lot with the paint industry, mm. you know, not a product that is thought of as being particularly, you know, environmentally friendly, but they have come in leaps and bounds. So it's it's a necessary product, right? So the idea is that we, you know, we work with people rather than sort of, you know, saying, you know, people need paint, right? And yeah. it's about putting parameters in place and setting best practice and, and paint, um, you know, uh, we've got, I think, most of the paint brands in New Zealand on board now, but Resine in particular has been pretty um, amazing, you know, with their product stewardship um, scheme, the take back scheme. Um, they take everyone's paint now um, and they've been with the label for about 26 years, I think. Mm. So, you know, a lot of dedication there, um, you know, carpets, all of those sorts of things. Um and the idea was that we would always expand into those consumer goods. But um, I guess with changes in government, one of the big things for us was around um, the idea and how it works around the world is that governments use the eco-label for their own procurement of goods and services. Um, and mm. before that could become a reality, because um, that's the carrot, right? Like a voluntary scheme. Why, why would you do it unless you have to? Yeah. Um, but before we were able to sort of execute that change in government, you know, couple of years passed. So that's something that we're really um, hoping the new government will leap yeah. on. Um, you, you would like to get to a situation where one of the um, benefits from having your eco mark is that you qualified to supply the government, who I imagine is a pretty big buyer in New Zealand. Absolutely. And I think that's the easiest way. Whether that's way. carpets for schools or, or whatever. Exactly. And I think that's like one of the easiest ways to scale green innovation is those big procurement contracts. Mm. So if you've got a smaller company that's doing all the right things, but they're having trouble competing with some of these big guys. You know, if they can get a procurement contract, suddenly they're in the game and they're forcing some of those big established guys to, you know, smarten up their act and look at different ways and innovate themselves. So that's one of the uh, the incentives. Um, there's also a huge incentive around, obviously, environmental impacts, um, but emissions reduction. So um, in Korea, they started their own uh, eco-label at the exact same time as us back in 1992. And um, they mandated um, for all of their... Uh, government departments to show preference to the eco-label eco back in 2006. And when they did that, um, they worked with the UN Environment Programme to, to measure, to mm. see over a decade what sort of impact that would have. And they found that they managed to reduce the government's own emissions by 4.6 million tonnes. Mm. Um, really simple thing to do that doesn't cost anyone a cent. Um, there's a, a real myth about sustainable products costing more. They don't, and they generally tend to save you money over the long term mm. in terms of you know efficiency. They're more durable. Um, you know, they're much more efficient when it comes to energy, those sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, economic theory would tell you that the more people the government has to choose from to supply them, the lower the price will be. That might be the uh, hurdle to get over with the new government. <laughs> Absolutely, but I mean, it's interesting because all the um, all the research has been done. So when uh, Kiti, the eco label uh, in Korea, first started, um, once when they just before they mandated uh, procurement, they had three hundred and twenty six products in their portfolio. Within a year, that shot up to four and a half thousand. 
So it's kind of a little bit chicken and egg. Yeah. So um, once the incentive is there, businesses are sort of forced um, for economic reasons yeah. um, to get with the program. And saying that there are a bunch of really cool New Zealand businesses that are already doing incredible mahi in this area. And, you know, we would love to see them recognised um, yeah. and the way they do things become So as you. Chief Executive, uh, you're... Uh You've got your fundraising on your plate, you're lobbying the new government, you're also running this auditing scheme, <laughs> and you're trying to kind of future-proof your organisation so that you become an established part of the landscape and, and keep up with similar organisations around the world. So that's a big job. So um, why did you take it on? Oh, I like a challenge. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I thought maybe my kind of weird and wacky range of skills um, – might be a, a good complement to the organisation. Yeah. So my background, so I, I started, I guess, the most of my career at um, Radio New Zealand um, and sort of found myself doing a lot of, um, I guess, advocacy journalism at the time. Um, always wanted to be a foreign correspondent. Um, ended up doing um, a little bit of time in Indonesia, uh, working as a journalist there. And I guess, you know, coming from New Zealand, quite a sheltered um, existence in a lot of respects, going to Indonesia and seeing... Um, you know, the environmental impacts, but particularly those, like, you know, the impacts on people, um, people living in poverty, uh, people who are being exploited, those sorts of things. Um, and eventually that sort of led me to working in the humanitarian aid and development sector. Um, I started with World Vision New Zealand and then ended up at World Vision International mm. um, pretty soon after um, and worked right around the world, Middle East, Africa, Asia. And I guess um, what I... What I started to see, particularly in you know the, the last couple of years, was you know traditionally we would work with a community on a development program for up to twenty years to be really holistic. So looking at economic development right through to mm -hmm. their disaster risk resilience, um, you know education, health, all of those sorts of things. So it takes a, a decent amount of time, and we really worked alongside communities to get to a point where you could withdraw and that be self-sustaining. Yeah. Yep. So we knew that it wasn't just a band-aid. Mm. And what we were seeing was you know there was I remember really. Um, still really fresh in my mind, um, we had to move a community in Bangladesh inland. Um, we'd started off, you know, they had a lot of uh, rice farms, which we ended up converting to shrimp farms um, because of the, the salination. Mm -hmm. uh, and then um, that just wasn't enough. We realised that we're going to have to just move them all. And all of that infrastructure, all of that money, all of that effort, um, we had to sort of move inland. And then, um, you know, around the Horn of Africa and I think the, the straw that kind of broke the camel's back in, in some respects was um, in Afghanistan. They were, had been suffering a drought for – this is far before the Taliban took over again. Um, they had been suffering drought for, gosh, several years and just no one seemed to care. Um, and we, you know, had been given the word by a big European donor at the time that unless misery was splashed on the pages of yeah. the newspaper, they weren't prepared to fund us. So we actually took Helen Clark with us because we thought we'll bring in the big guns. And I actually did what I did to you, Jesse. I um, sent her a LinkedIn message and was like, hey, just want to know if you want to have a chat. Um, so we took her to Afghanistan, which was a huge undertaking. But, um, you know, she was a really credible voice talking about how something like drought – which, you know, nine times out of ten is is, is a result of climate change, has these unintended consequences that we, we're not privy to in New Zealand yet. So, um, you know, people, there's a huge amount of subsistence farmers in um, Afghanistan as, you know, throughout the Middle East and um, 
the Horn of Africa, and they were, you know, their land was no longer tenable, so they had to, you know, move into the cities. They were, you know, desperate, looking for work. They weren't able to find work, um, so they're living in poverty in cities. They're slowly L- lots of unexpected knock-on effects. Yeah, yeah. I just, I'm just having a look at the time, so I oh, want to make sure. sure we get to <laughs> oh, COP, <laughs> <laughs> COP twenty-eight. Yeah. 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 Is this the first time you've been to COP? It's the first time I've been to COP, but um, I have been to sort of UN General Assemblies in the past. Okay. But I mean, this Why'd was you go? huge. Um, from our perspective, um, there was a lot of uh, standards organisations and things like that there that we work with. Mm. Um, so it was a really good opportunity for us to feed into what future yeah. standards look like and how we can um, help businesses in New Zealand get ahead of the curve in terms of what's, you know, some of the requirements they're going to be expected mm-hmm. from them, from banks, from lenders, from insurers, those sorts of things. Um, so gave us huge insights to sort of um, build that into our standards that we have um, at the moment and future standards as well. Um and is it, it an exciting place to be or a demoralizing place to be? Do you know, I, I described it as a real roller coaster and I'm still kind of, um, I hate the cliche saying that I'm processing it, but it was two, two weeks of just like constant talk around climate change and impacts and solutions and yeah. on the whole, really insightful, but um, also incredibly frustrating. Um, like a lot of really good stuff happens there and I know people sort of do roll their eyes a little bit about this, but, you know, if you want to get an agreement on something like, you know, that we've got, trying to get 200 different countries to agree on various different articles from agriculture to finance, you can't do that on Zoom. You can't. And there's two different sort of sides to COP. You have like the business side where there's like actual collaboration happening. You've got the negotiations and then you've got a big proportion of community groups, indigenous groups, youth who are kind of peacefully protesting or making their voices heard, which I think is such a vital reminder when these negotiators walk into an air-conditioned room. It gives them that sort of anchor, like this is, okay, this is real. It might not be in my country right now. So it's sort of HQ once a year for everyone working in this space to come and connect, network, check in, get ideas hopefully, uh, and then work out what the next 12 months are going to look like. Pretty much. Were you privy to the the negotiations or is that happening separate to where you are? Yeah, so the first time, uh, it's the first time I think New Zealand has offered what they call party overflow badges, so you could apply for them. Um, So there's a mix of NGOs, um, businesses, uh, people from all sorts of walks of life who um, who went along. But um, everything is out in the open, um, transparent. To be honest, the negotiations are a bit boring Mm. uh, because they've had like they've had pre conversations, so it's a lot of sort of looking at wording, and not all of it is contentious obviously you know the wording around fossil fuels was and it got passionate but um it's a lot of people sort of um yeah just sort of deciding on um, particular wording and things like that there's a lot of side events where you get incredible insights to the impacts that are happening um around the globe but also um the incredible opportunities so i was really lucky i just sort of stumbled across um an event held by these really awesome Kiwis, um, uh, these phenomenal Maori leaders, um, and they have this startup where it's kind of it's going to turn. I, I think this is the prediction. Hot tip here um, that it will turn international carbon markets on their head. Um, so what they're did you offering, write about this for the spinoff? Or I did, yeah. I did. Yeah. So they're offering it's. I guess it's kind of like a biodiversity credit, but the idea is that you know carbon credits aren't a great long term investment. The closer we get to net zero. You know, the more worthless they're going to become. Hini Moana um, Halo is proposing, um, and it's Aotearoa and the Pacific, um, sort of conservation and regeneration efforts that really focus on sort of coastal and marine areas. Um, and 
the money from the credits will go to the communities to sort of equip them um, and finance their kaitiaki efforts. But it's, you know, we hear this a lot, like just transition. How are we going to make sure that, you know, once we take away fossil fuels and we put these regulations in place, you know, that's going to leave people without jobs Mm -hmm. and things that they, you know, maybe their livelihoods. So it's sort of transitioning them to taking this like caretaker role and making that something that is actually going to earn income for them, which is incredible. And they've got, yeah, some absolute environmental rock stars on their team, which I was just gobsmacked by. So for me, they got a $50 million grant, uh, US million dollar grant. And um, for me, that was like kind of, I really needed that at the end of the two weeks, that really good news, because, you know, there had been, there'd been a lot, like they had a youth delegation from Kiribati who was so eloquent and, you know, 20 year olds talking about the fact that they're likely to be climate refugees in the next few years is, is pretty devastating. When change happens, is it going to come from, this, I need the short answer, is it sure. going to come, come from governments or is it going to come from business or is it going to come from individuals? Oh, it's going to have to come from everyone. But, I mean, government has a has a real role to play here. I think New Zealand businesses are actually doing pretty well and um, I think we've seen a level of kind of radical collaboration that we haven't seen elsewhere. But also from a consumer level, and I know we've all got so many things to think about, um, you know, I know what it's like to be in a supermarket and you've got two kids who are about to destroy the place and you just want mm-hmm. to get out there as quickly as possible. So I guess that's where we come in is that we really want people to think about um, – you know, what they're consuming. And, you know, for such a long time, we were told that recycling was the holy grail and it's not. So, you know, think about, do you really need this thing? Um, If you do, then, you know, is it able to be reused or repaired? Um, Those sorts of things. Look at packaging and look for the, look for the eco label. We'll check in with you again. Thanks very much for the report from COP28. I've been talking to Laura Gemmel, who's been at EcoChoice. She's Chief Executive Officer of EcoChoice Aotearoa and she's been at COP28.